Hello, and welcome to the Energy Pioneers Podcast, a show dedicated to the legacy of the pioneers of the offshore oil and gas industry. I'm energy historian Jason Terrier. Each podcast episode features stories of industry pioneers whose leadership, grit, and technological expertise built the modern offshore industry in the Gulf of Mexico and around the world. For more than two decades, the Oilfield Energy Center in Houston has honored these legendary men and women by inducting them into the OEC's Hall of Fame. The stories you will hear are from the Hall of Famers themselves, whose original interviews with the OEC have been digitally remastered and preserved for posterity. Throughout the history of this industry, there are a select few who have made significant contributions to business and technological innovation. These key individuals literally shaped the offshore industry. Without their pioneering achievements, the development of the offshore would have turned out differently. In this episode, we feature none other than Alden Doc Laborde, considered by many to be the father of the offshore oil industry. Laborde was involved in three successful offshore companies. He founded the Ocean Drilling and Exploration Company, Otico, in the early 1950s, followed shortly thereafter by Tidewater Marine, and decades later, Gulf Island Fabricators. He is best noted for designing and operating the first submersible offshore drilling rig, the Mr. Charlie. This first mobile drilling unit revolutionized the offshore oil industry and led to the semi-submersible floating drilling vessels that have become the standard for offshore operations around the world. Alden J. Laborde grew up in a French-speaking community in Marksville, Louisiana in Avoyles Parish. His father was a school teacher and was able to send Doc and his brothers to college. Doc went to LSU for one year, then through ROTC, he got an opportunity of a lifetime to attend the Naval Academy in Annapolis. He joined the Navy ship in 1938 and sailed all across the world for the next six years. During World War II, he commanded three naval vessels, including a destroyer escort in the North Atlantic. It was this military experience that provided him with the leadership skills needed to run a premier drilling company, Otico, which during the heyday of the offshore industry was considered the top drilling contractor around the world. Being an officer in charge of crews during wartime certainly rounded out his impeccable character, his intuition, and his ability to lead a dynamic team of managers, engineers, and drillers. Along with that, he treated people, especially his customers, with the utmost respect and gratitude. These are all important characteristics that personified pioneering offshore work, and Doc Laborde had it in abundance. Well, you certainly go back to your parents and the religion and good old priest when I was a kid who hammered all of that into us uh, along with the parents. And then as I went on, uh, that was certainly the basis on uh, which uh, naval officer training is based. And I was fortunate enough to go to the Naval Academy and got four years of intensive training there. And that was really the underlying uh, consideration there, leadership and integrity. And uh, it just is part of my growing up, part of my being. And uh, I just uh, think that that's the way life should be. When Laborde returned home from the war, he went searching for a job. He started as a helper on a seismograph crew, then went to work for Sid Richardson on a drilling barge operating in the coastal marshes and swamps of Louisiana. 
By the late 1940s, the industry had started to adapt dry land technology to a marine environment where boats and barges were necessary to any operation. This was a critical period in the evolution of the industry and its progression into offshore. Doc Laborde and his Mr. Charlie submersible drill barge were at the forefront of this transition. We call them swamp barges. They operated out of uh, dredged channels and uh, moved about that way, sat on bottom to drill and then picked up and moved to the next one. And so I worked on that for a couple of years. And I was not aware of anything going on offshore at that time. I'm sure preparations were underway, but that was well over my capacity as a roustabout. Uh, I, I did learn, though, in 1947 that uh, Kerr McGee had made an offshore discovery off of Morgan City in the Gulf. And uh, it dawned on me that here might be my opportunity. I have a pretty good background in what I'd call the naval side or the marine side of the business, which most of the petroleum and oil field types at that time did not have. So I said, this might give me a little leg up on them to make up for my lack of oil field experience. And went over and after a while was able to get a job with Kerr McGee uh, as their marine superintendent down there at the Morgan City base. They were having to run a lot of tugs and barges and crew boats and things. And a bunch of guys from Oklahoma were trying to do it. And they were naturally running into a lot of surprises, not understanding that in the marine environment you often have to roll with it, if you will, and certainly allow for it, rather than hit it frontally like oil field hands are inclined to do. And uh, So they were glad to turn that part over to somebody anyway, and that gave me an opportunity to observe the oil field operations. I had already had some experience on the Sid Richardson rig, and uh, uh, I kept trying to learn all I could about it. I made a nuisance of myself, I guess, asking a lot of questions, because I know a lot of these tool pushers would tell you, well, you know, wait a while. When you've been around a while, you'll understand all of that. Uh, anyway, in the course of my couple of years there, it dawned on me that we were not doing that very smartly, that uh, uh, having to go out and build a piling platform and then set up a land rig on it and then after you made the usual dry hole to have to unrig all of that was certainly not a, a good way to do it. And that was no great stroke of wisdom. Everybody else realized that. It's just that no one had really come up with anything that they thought would work to take its place. And uh, I thought we could build a submersible barge that would sit on bottom and uh, it would probably stay there. And tried to talk Dean McGee, who ran Kerr McGee at that time, into doing it. He uh, showed some interest, but said, you know, he didn't think they were ready to do that. So I told him, with regret, I would like to resign and see if I couldn't promote the thing otherwise. So that's what I did. And in about 1952, I said two years. I was at Kerr McGee four years. I'm sorry, from 48 to 52. And uh, I hit the road with some sketches and things and called on all the major oil companies who were doing offshore operations along the Gulf Coast. But most of them had very uh, significant 
engineering expertise and who pretty well could prove that this thing, you know, is not very feasible. Uh, it's, it's not in the psyche of major company managers to stick their neck out on the technique uh, and expose their careers to damage or worse. Uh, they prefer conforming, and if Gov does it, and Shell does it, and Exxon does it, well then if you do it uh, and it doesn't work too well, at least you're in good company. Uh, it took me several months to conclude that uh, if I was going to do it, that wasn't the, the crowd to do it, but in uh, going around, you know, word got around and others heard about it, and one day I had a call from a fellow who was doing a, an offshore study for a a group of companies, uh, Murphy Oil among them, who from from a distance had heard about this and wanted to know whether it was feasible for them to get into the offshore. This guy concluded for them that they were too little to tackle it frontally in competition with the majors, that the best thing to do would be to build some kind of a rig and contract it out and take interests and occasionally drill a well for themselves. Of the group, Two of them decided that was too risky, but Murphy thought it was all right. And so that was kind of the beginning of putting a, a package together that uh, finally turned into Odico. Murphy agreed to put up uh, half the money, half the equity that I needed, which I had indicated would be a million dollars. And uh, with them in, in hand, I was able to raise the rest of the money from individual investors in the, at about $50,000 a piece among 10 guys around St. Louis. And so we got the million dollars and with credit from a shipyard and from uh, Continental Emsco Supply Company, we were able to go ahead and contract for the first rig, which cost a total of about two and a half million dollars. That's a far cry from the two or three hundred million dollars they're spending on the uh, deep water rigs today. Mr. Charlie went out and finally persuaded Shell Oil to use it. They had a need for it down there near the mouth of the Mississippi River in the field that we later, they later christened East Bay. Uh, and a very courageous superintendent, a fellow, a Dutchman named Bo Dykstra, just bowed his neck with his management and said, you know, we're going to try it. And my contract with him was that if it didn't work, you know, he didn't have to pay anything. So uh, off we went and, you know, we f fooled around a good bit with a new well and a new technique and it turned out the bottom of the ocean in that area was about like the consistency of whipped cream. It just wasn't very solid or anything. But we muddled around and got the first well drilled. And as a contractor, I didn't know what was going on down the well, of course. They all, that was all top secret stuff. They'd send, bring that geologist out and we'd all have to get off the floor when they were running the logs. But uh, after, at the end of the well, I went in to see Mr. Dykstra and I told him, you know, you know, here we are, we didn't do very well. Are you gonna continue using the rig? And he said, man, that's the best rig we've ever had. He said, you're gonna need two or three more of those. I did not know at that time that he had made a beautiful discovery with several hundred feet of oil sand, and he was laying out about 10 more locations around it for us. And uh, whether the rig had moved about a little bit and gotten out of trim, and we had had a few other kinds of problems, that was the least of his worries. He was, I think, 
so happy to take that log to New York and flash it to his bosses over there that he thought we had done it. You did a great job. He said, that's a good rig. With this novel design concept in mind, which he had modeled after the Hayward Barnsdall rig, Laborde founded Otico in 1953. He contracted with Alexander Shipyard in New Orleans to build the Mr. Charlie and named it after Charles Murphy of Murphy Oil, his main financial backer. Uh, I have to give uh, full and due credit to the work of John T. Hayward, who had built a rig that they called the Barnsdall Breton Rig, a specialized rig to work in Breton Sound in about 15 feet of water. It was a consisted of a, a lower hull and uh, then long legs to hold up a deck and then a deck about 30 feet above that, let's say. And while that was a specialized rig for that water depth, uh, and it was not designed for the open waters, it was certainly the basis for my thinking. And in fact, I enlisted the help and support of Mr. Hayward, who was then still living, and he helped me with the design and the concept of, of Mr. Charlie. And so it was really just an extension. His Breton rig was kind of an extension of the old swamp barges, which were already in use uh, under the old Gileasso patents. The Texaco was the principal exponent, uh, proponent and user of those, that kind of rig in the swamps. Uh, and the next step was this little bigger one that Hayward had designed. If you think about it a little, part of the problem is getting that lower hull to bottom without capsizing because uh, if you think about it, once a body goes underwater, it no longer has any stability. So he had dreamed up some movable pontoon, outrigger pontoons to stabilize it. As the barge went down, these pontoons rose and remained at the water line and kept it stable, sort of like the wing walls of a dry dock, keep it stable as the lower hull goes down. Mr. Charlie used that same principle, if you will, except for wing walls, we dreamed up using large columns instead outboard. And as the deck lost its uh, water plane surface, uh, the columns took it over and we sized the columns such that it would maintain stability until it touched bottom. The submersible drilling rig revolutionized the industry and launched a sustained drive into deeper waters offshore. Under Laborde's leadership, Otico became an industry leading offshore drilling contractor. With a growing team of eager engineers and managers, Otico pushed the envelope further and made a giant technological leap with the Ocean Driller, a massive V-shaped semi-submersible that could float in the open ocean and drill in hundreds of feet of water. We built uh, you know, a number of these submersible type rigs, sit on bottom rigs, I guess uh, six or eight of them before we realized that we would need to do something else to go into the deep water and that's when we built the ocean driller on the floating principle and uh, the ocean driller was really the first one built for that purpose for what i'd call more or less unlimited offshore service but unlimited meaning maybe up to three or four hundred feet of water which sounded pretty deep at that time so i never thought we'd get beyond that the, they were building jack up rigs too and it, they were making them maybe finally to get to 300 feet of water or thereabouts, and then they got pretty unwieldy. Those legs got so long and uh, things got pretty big. And so then you realize you needed something else, and that's when the float drilling got started. Again, 
you relied on what others were doing on the West Coast. They had been drilling off of some, some ships at about that time. So they had developed some of the underwater gear and the cable guide and the submerged blowout preventers and the risers and things. So we didn't have to reinvent all of that. We just had to apply it to a different kind of a rig. And that's really the way the business has involved, evolved all over the world all during this period. One guy builds something and the next one comes along and improves on it. During this extraordinary growth period in the industry, other state-of-the-art mobile drilling units entered the scene, including Shell's Blue Water One and the Cus II drill ship in offshore California. These pioneering offshore applications took the industry to new heights and greater depths. The modern deepwater drilling units used by the global leaders of today, such as Transocean and Noble Drilling, trace their lineage back to these first-generation novel floating drilling vessels like the Ocean Driller. We built the thing on speculation. We didn't have a contract for it and uh, had that much confidence that it was going to work. The way we'd, we didn't do any fancy model tests about it, uh, I built a, a pretty rough a duplicate of the thing out of some uh, wooden tubes and and some other pieces for the hull and brought it in the backyard swimming pool and tied it up and uh, brought in a, a regular ship's hull model and put it there and then one of my sons on the end of the pool made some big waves and we could just watch it in this old ship was jumping around like crazy and this uh, this uh, model of the ocean driller just sat there beautifully and so we said gee that's it that's good enough as i say all these things evolved we had no real data from which to design uh, any of this stuff at that time and the regulatory authorities took very little interest in it the coast guard and the abs and those people just you know had no real interest in becoming involved and there were no criteria established which was good and bad because if they had had them it would probably have been a great impediment to developing new things like that. We've uh, claimed at that time probably to ha be the biggest offshore contract driller in the, in the whole world. We had about 42 or 43 rigs working at one time all around the world. We worked in Australia and Indonesia and Japan and South America, North Sea, of course, and various places from time to time where you went for one or two uh, jobs. Otico's reputation as a frontier drilling contractor expanded worldwide. After running the company for 25 years, Laborde decided to step down. But his pioneering achievements didn't end with Otico. He also co-founded one of the first offshore supply boat companies, Tidewater Marine. And about the same time as we started Otico, I had realized from my work at Kerr-McGee that the support operation was very important. And we were using the uh, World War II LCTs for supply vessels. They, you probably remember the looks of them. They were a kind of a flat bottom, barge looking thing with a pilot house and structure in, in the back. And there was a front ramp that in the World War II you used to discharge the tanks and the troops. We welded that ramp up and they, they were very good for putting pipe and mud and all. They were very, not very strongly built. They were pretty thin plate and what have you, but they served the purpose well. Uh, the, the, the thought that I had that might have been unique, I think, was that 
in moving a, in handling a ship alongside a, a boat like that alongside a rig and trying to control it, uh, you're, you're really powerless to control the bow. You, all of your rudders and your power and all is at the stern. But that was not the part that you needed to hold against the rig because uh, uh, you had that big house there. Uh, your cargo was up front and that sort of waved around. When, when the boat stops, it's pretty hard to put it in, uh, keep it in a position. So it dawned on me that moving all of this wheelhouse and pilot house and the deck house up forward and leaving the aft part completely clear and then backing into the rig, you could hold that pretty well in position while they unloaded it. They wouldn't allow you to touch the rig to tie up to them. You know, you had these spindly jack-up legs and that sort of thing, or alongside a platform. You could have done a lot of damage, so they kept you away from those and still you had to unload stuff sometimes in pretty rough seas or shut the operation down. And so we decided to go ahead and build one of those, not within Otico, though I uh, got another group of guys together and we each put up $10,000 and raised 125000 as I recall. And we built the first one of those units and organized uh, Tidewater. And um, that was sort of a sideshow to Otico, which was, we had maybe one rig at the time and were beginning to get bigger. When Otico went public and started getting bigger and all that, I realized in, in the meantime, in this Tidewater, we had built three or four of those boats. People had laughed at the first one when they saw it coming down the river. It was a pretty strange creature that we had built there in New Orleans. And I realized that uh, there would be some conflict there. There was a great opportunity for Tidewater to have a life of its own. Also, I had mistakenly thought that drilling contractors would have to furnish the boats with a rig to, for a viable thing and that it would work that way. But in fact, it turned out that these companies wanted to kind of run their own little naval operation. They had marine superintendents and they wanted to allocate the boats and hire the boats themselves separate from the rigs. And so that uh, convinced me that we better just turn tide water loose and let it go. And that's when my brother John came into the picture and took over Tidewater. I had another brother in it, and I disassociated myself from it completely. I sold my stock to my, my $10,000 worth of stock to my older brother at what I had in it and, and walked away and never really had much of an interest in Tidewater, uh, except I was on the board later and was always very friendly, but my brothers ran it. Then in the mid-1980s, after several years of retirement from Otico, Doc Labor orchestrated the purchase of a major fabrication yard in Houma, Louisiana, and opened Gulf Island Fabricators, which today is one of the leading oil field fabrication contractors in the Gulf Coast. Over the last 70 years, there are few individuals who have had as much influence on the development of the offshore industry as Doc Labor. Through it all, he remained deeply committed to his customers and his people. One of his top managers, Jim Wilkinson, who rose to vice president of Otico, offered some insight on the defining leadership qualities of Doc Laborde and his unyielding dedication to the company he founded. Welcome to the program, Jim. Thank you, Jason, for this opportunity to speak about Alden J. 
Doc LaBoard, whom I have admired all my adult life. I met Doc when I was 22 years of age. I was being interviewed to leave Chevron and begin work for Ocean Drilling and Exploration Company. Now, 66 years later, I'm still amazed at what an outstanding person he was. A Christian leader, a patriot, husband and father, and in the Fortune Magazine Business Hall of Fame. Doc led by being out front and setting an example that none of us could emulate, but many of us made an effort to follow. He led by his faith, his family, and certainly by his work ethic. That included safety first, obey the law, and service to the customer. In the early 1950s, the industry saw oil was being produced in large quantities onshore and between 1940 and 1950, many oil fields had been discovered in the marshes of South Louisiana. It was also evident that the geology did not change at the coastline and very likely large fields would be found near the coast in shallow waters. At that time, the only method used to drill in those shallow waters was to drive wooden piling, build a wooden platform, and mount a land drilling rig on the platform. This was slow, costly, and since the majority of wells found no oil, the rig and platform would have to be removed and the process started over at a new location. Doc was the Marine superintendent on such an operation, overseeing the boats used to transport men and materials, and with his inventive mind and the training he had received at the U.S. Naval Academy, class of 38. He saw there was a better way. Build a large barge, mount a drilling rig on a platform built above and separated from that barge that could provide a margin above the expected wave action. The barge would be capable of moving from location to location. It would submerge to and rest on bottom. A well could be drilled and the barge could be floated and moved to a new location. This proved to be a very workable and economic method, and the first na rig named the Mr. Charlie began operation in mid-1954. That barge drilled and water depths up to 42 feet very successfully for over 20 years. That first successful barge is now a museum in Morgan City, Louisiana. From the 1954 beginning in 40 feet of water depth, Using those marine engineering concepts used by Doc, engineers at Odico, various competitors, and oil operators extended the economic water depth all could be explored and produced in to over 10,000 feet. So by 2020, when I ceased being active at the age of 86, the offshore water depth, economic water depth, had moved from 40 feet to 10,000 feet all from the ideas and hard work of Doc Laborde. In closing, when I think of Doc Laborde, I remember a rainmaker can build a firm, a geologist can build an oil company, but Doc Laborde provided ideas and the hard work that built a company and an industry and that operated worldwide to provide an answer to economically find and provide energy the world needed in 1954 and still needs today.
it seems to me a lot of the big things that happened to me have just happened by, you know, by the grace of God. And uh, once you get in, into one of these things, you just stay with it and finally it works out or it doesn't. It's very important all the way through, even though at times there may be some shortcuts that might appear attractive and that would be helpful. Uh, I suggest that taking those would not be the a very rewarding thing to do and in the 50 odd years that I've been at it and watching other people do it every now and then it seems that someone is succeeding by speeding and taking shortcuts and high-powered promotion and all that but as I look around after all these years you don't see many of those guys still around uh, basically your customers want good product good service and good honest tough business treatment and I think that's all you have to give them. Doc Laborde passed away in 2014 but his legacy lives on. Part of that legacy, the Mr. Charlie, has been preserved as a museum. Amazingly, Mr. Charlie worked in the offshore Gulf of Mexico for 30 years. It came into the Otico docks at Amelia, Louisiana at the height of the oil bust in 1986 and it never went back out. Instead, this engineering marvel the first of its kind in the world was saved from the scrapyard by a local nonprofit group led by a civil engineer, Virgil Allen. In 1993, the Mr. Charlie was opened to the public as a museum with guided tours and now serves as an on-site training facility for new offshore rig hands. Fitting that the only two offshore rig museums, the Ocean Star Jacob and Galveston and the Mr. Charlie in Morgan City, were both owned and operated by Otico a tribute to the pioneering efforts of its founder, Doc Laborde. This concludes our episode of the Energy Pioneers Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Terrier. Stay tuned to more episodes of the pioneers of the offshore oil and gas industry.